Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Certainly as believers, we come together. One of the reasons that we come together each week is to express our trust in the Lord, to acknowledge who He is collectively and what He's done for us. And we do so as we sing praises to His name, as we sing to Him together, declaring His character and His promises and His blessings. We come together to celebrate Him and we continue expressing our trust in Him by reading His Word, by submitting ourselves to hear from Him. So we're in Nehemiah. We've begun a series through uh, this short Old Testament book. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2 today, looking at the latter half of that chapter beginning in verse 9, but by way of review, the context is this. Uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king in Persia. He's the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. It's the year 445 BC. Uh, And uh, many exiles who've been displaced from Israel uh, have begun to return to Israel, but even so, the situation there is, is grim. Nehemiah has inquired about the situation in Jerusalem and the people there, and he's been uh, met with news that the people are troubled, that they're in disgrace, that the walls of the city are still broken down, the gates have been burned with fire, and Nehemiah, broken over this news, weeps. He knows this is not consistent with God's plans for his people, his plans to be made known among his people, to be a light shining through his people to the nations of the world, And so he, he weeps, he prays for days, he fasts, he mourns before God, and then he senses the Lord leading him. The Lord leads him to approach the king and ask for an extended leave of absence to go be the project manager to rebuild the city's walls in Jerusalem. But God's providence has granted such favor. So that conversation between Nehemiah and the king has just unfolded, and the king has committed uh, to send uh, to, to, to send him letters so that he'll have safe travels and have sufficient supplies for the task at hand. And that's where we pick up the story. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Let me invite you, as is our practice here, uh, as you find your place in the Word, draw me standing, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of, of God's holy Word. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Nehemiah says, So I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates, And gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the the valley gate. 
The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sinbalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We give God thanks this morning for the reading of his word. Oh, Father, now guide us by your spirit's presence. Lead us that we might know and follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, there's a little statement there in this story at the end of verse 18. So they began this good work. So they began this good work. I want us to consider that phrase this morning, uh, good work, and think about what makes any particular work good. What is good work? What is good work? It's been said that the Christian way to do your job is to do it well. So what does it mean to do it well? Well, I want to propose to you today that good work is work done for God's glory. Good work is work that is done for God's glory. In other words, the primary motivation... The primary motivation for good work among believers, among those who know the God of the Scriptures, those who know the Lord God, the primary motivation of good work among believers ought not be income, as important as that is, or identity, but God's glory, the praise of His name. And when it is, when that is the case, When our work is done from a posture of praise, our work becomes an act of worship. Let me ask you, could could you worship as you work? Could you worship as you work? Could, Could your work be classified as worship? Our mission statement here as a church begins this way. We exist to glorify God by knowing God through biblical worship. Could you worship... As you work, no doubt Nehemiah does. In fact, part of Nehemiah's legacy is a theology of work. The late J.I. Packer, theologian, says this. He notices, he records, he says, The noun work recurs again and again like a drumbeat in Nehemiah's story of building of the, of the building of the wall. 
again and again, like, like a drumbeat in Nehemiah's story of the building of the wall. In fact, listen to just a few occurrences of it. Verse 16 of chapter 2, as yet I had said nothing to the Jews who would be doing the work. Verse 18, so they began this good work. Chapter 3, verse 5, their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. Chapter 4, verse 11, our enemies said, we will put an end to the work. Verse 15, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Chapter 4, verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did their work. Then I said, verse 19, the work is extensive. Verse 21, so we continued the work. Chapter 5, verse 16, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. So the story goes. You you get the point. Nehemiah repeatedly describes rebuilding Jerusalem's walls as work. A work that's done for God's glory and for the welfare of his people. And so I wonder, is it possible for you to do your work for God's glory? Teacher, is it possible for you to teach for God's glory? Project manager, is it possible for you to oversee for God's glory? Accountant, is it possible for you to do accounting for God's glory? Doctor, is it possible for you to diagnose and to prescribe and to care for patients for God's glory? I mean, most of us spend more time in the workplace than in any other place other than the home place. And so if my work could be an avenue of my growing in Christ, if my work could be an avenue of serving my Savior and advancing His gospel, I don't know about you, but I sure would like to tap in to that time. Paul says it this way, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Just a few days ago, my family uh, went to a Chick-fil-A uh, out of state on the way back home here to, to Birmingham. And would you know that uh, the Chick-fil-A workers in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi are just as polite and kind and joyful and helpful as the Chick-fil-A workers here in Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, how could it be? In fact, In that order, and when you're ordering for a family of five, it's not unusual for something to be slightly off. There was one thing that was off in the order, and that was a large diet Dr. Pepper had been replaced with a large Dr. Pepper. And so I was sent back in. I won't tell you who sent me back in, but I was sent back in to swap that out. And so I approached the guy there behind the counter and and said, hey, you know. Just knowing, I felt like it was going to be a burden on him, but knowing, hey, this this isn't what I ordered, this isn't right, so could you, could you get me a a diet, Dr. Pepper? And just with a smile on his face, as kind as he could, as polite as he could be, clearly joy in his body, he was thrilled to, yes, replace that and to take care and dispose of the, the old one. I, I, like he, he could have made me feel as if I was a jerk for protesting an incorrect Order because I've certainly been made to feel as such in other places, which I won't name. But this left me thinking, this guy enjoys what he does. If he doesn't enjoy it, he sure disguises it, it well. And not all work is paid work. In fact, Packer defines biblical work as any exertion of effort that aims at producing a new state of affairs. Any exertion of effort that 
that aims at producing a new state of affairs. And so that being said, Mr. Retiree, you're not off the hook here. This is stay-at-home mom, you're doing work. Student, artist, musician, teacher, engineer, minister, committee member, volunteer. We've got work to do, work to be done for the glory of, of our God. I think as believers, we often have a tendency to, to divide our lives between the secular and the sacred. Between times and activities when God is on the mind and perhaps times and activities when he's not so much on the mind. I think the Bible says not so fast, believer. Because when all of life is lived for God's glory, then suddenly all of life becomes sacred. We do well to believe and to act as if work's a good thing, a God thing. Part of God's good design for the people he has made. Friends, we were made to work. We were made to work. Human work wasn't imposed post-fall on human sinners. No, it was part of God's good design for us in the very beginning. How do we know? Well, the Bible tells us so. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. This is before chapter 3 when the fall takes place. Adam's got a job to do. A tall task to care for God's good creation as the crown of it. The one responsible for stewarding well what God's given him to do. Supervising God's magnificent garden and doing so as a service unto the Lord. It was only after sin that work became burdensome. That work became difficult. That work became even even. Painful at times, but even so, we, we know from moments in our own lives the satisfaction of experiencing the fruit of hard labor. We, we know this from experience. We, we learn this, perhaps even as kids, to prepare well for a test and then to perform well on that test and to experience the satisfaction of it. We know from experience what it feels like to experience the satisfaction and the fruit of of hard labor doing the job. I've been accused lately by members of my own family of planting a Charlie Brown tree in the front yard. You guys know what a Charlie Brown tree is from Charlie Brown's Christmas story, that pitiful little tree that he picks out to celebrate Christmas and He puts an ornament on it and the whole thing sort of leans over and he says, ah, I think I've killed it. I think Linus it is that speaks up and says, no, I think it just needs a little love. I've been accused of planting such trees, a Japanese maple, but you know what? It's a $90 Japanese maple, small as it is. And I can assure you, I'm going to do everything in my power to care well for that tree. That tree's going to make it. Like I've dug a beautiful hole and... Uh, planted that tree and mulched it and watering it regularly. I'm taking as good a care of that particular tree as I can because I want to. I want to enjoy. I'm already enjoying. Small may it be, the fruit of that labor. Like we, we know what that's like. See, in the beginning, Adam worked the garden as an act of worship. As an act of worship to his God. And in the future, we too will spend our days. 
We'll spend our days working, using our God-given gifts to glorify His name forever. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, In heaven no longer will there be any curse. Remember, part of the curse of sin is difficult, painful labor. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, will be in the city. That is the new city, the new Jerusalem. And His servants will serve Him. We will serve Him. We were made to work, to work unto the Lord. So let's begin seeing our work here as opportunity to serve our true master, to use our gifts and our passions for the glory of his name. We were made to work, and we see here that good work fulfills God's plans and flows from right hearts. Good work fulfills God's plans and flows from from right hearts. If good work is work done for God's glory, then good work can only happen if we know the God of glory. And the scriptures invite us to know him. Scriptures invite us to to know him, to know who he is as the God of heaven and to know him personally as the God who made, sustains, and who saves me in Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know the God of heaven? The one who sent his son to save you, to redeem you from your sins. Are you familiar with his ways? Are you confident in his good and gracious character? You see, this man, Nehemiah, is familiar with God's ways because he knows God's word, believing the plans of God are meant to come to pass because God himself is indeed faithful. He is faithful. And so upon experiencing the hand of God, directing him to go, leading him to Jerusalem, And upon experiencing the favor of God, granting safe travels along the way and sufficient supplies for the project at hand, this humble leader, Nehemiah, travels to his ancestral homeland, surveys the situation, and then he addresses the people there saying, verse 17, he says, you see the trouble we're in. Notice that he says we. It's not the trouble you're in. He identifies with the people. You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, this man, Nehemiah, he he knows God desires to be known. And he knows that God deserves to be praised. And he knows that as long as Jerusalem lies in rubble, the reputation of her God is at stake. And so confident, he's confident, confident in the Lord, confident that the Lord's led him here to this place at this time. He's, he's ready to work. He's ready to work for the Lord, acknowledging that it's only by God's hand that he's here to do this job, to lead this particular endeavor in the city of Jerusalem. He says so, verse 18. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. I just sort of just imagined setting the conversation. What? You went before the king? And you, you asked to go home? And to invest in Jerusalem? A foreign people who worship another god? You, you went before the king and asked for supplies and safe travels and to, to leave this job behind and to do something that the king himself has already stopped once the rebuilding of the wall there in Jerusalem. You're kidding, right? And he said, what? 
okay, let's do this. Let's start rebuilding the wall. And so they began this good work. See, good work fulfills God's plans and flows from right hearts, hearts that know the Lord and that depend on the Lord through prayer. Oh, believer, like Nehemiah, depend on your God through prayer. Depend on your God. The God that you know, the God that we know. God who's faithful to his word. Depend on your God through prayer. There are numerous principles for faithful work and faithful leadership from this story, from the book of Nehemiah. And here's one of them. Depend on your God through prayer. Depend on him through recounting the sequence of events. Nehemiah tells what God has done. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, Not for any other reason, but because God heard my prayers and because his hand was upon me, the king granted my request. Here's a man of prayer, seeking the Lord, crying out to the Lord, laying his life before the Lord, praying, then acting, then praying some more. Far more interested in his readers, that's us, far more interested in us exalting his God than praising his own efforts. See, the Bible invites us to follow suit, depending on God for wisdom. Depending on the Lord for wisdom, wisdom in the workplace and wisdom for life. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Just ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. you see, as we strive to work for God's glory, let's depend on him through prayer and let's trust him through hardship. Trust your God through hardship. Trust your God through, through hardship. And if you're honest, maybe some of you would say, Pastor, well, you, you don't know what kind of pressure I'm under in the workplace. Preacher, you, you don't know what we're dealing with at home right now. You, you don't know the internal struggle that I feel. You, you don't know, and you're right. I, I don't know. But the Lord knows. He knows. He sees. He hears cries for help, and He cares. He cares, and He responds. And nowhere do the Scriptures imply that faithfulness to God means the absence of opposition. We see here that when Senballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? Who, who, do, you, who do you think you are? Are you really going to... Are, are you rebelling against the king? You see, these guys are regional leaders. Senballat, the governor of Samaria, Tobiah, perhaps the governor of Ammon... Geshem, a leader of the southern part of Judah, they don't worship Yahweh, at least not exclusively. And so, of course, they oppose this good work. And likewise, church, if you are faithful to God's call, spending your days for his glory, you will encounter opposition, possibly even ridicule from colleagues or classmates, neighbors and others, perhaps in the workplace. 
certainly in the world. And when we do, when we encounter hardship, whatever it may be, may we be a people who trust our God through it. May we join the psalmist and pray to God, teach me knowledge and good judgment. God, teach me, instruct me, give me wisdom, teach me knowledge and good judgment for I trust your commands. I I trust you. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? Like Nehemiah, have have we learned to trust him? He is trustworthy. Good work fulfills God's plans. In other words, it's in accordance with his word. And it flows from right hearts, hearts that trust him. And we see here from this story that good work is hard work. Good work is hard work. It doesn't take the easy way. It's hard work. Hard hard work alone isn't the answer. We're not talking about workaholism. Workaholics are often driven by fear, but good work flows from faith. Workaholics struggle to rest. But but we know from the scriptures that a biblical theology of work portrays life as a rhythm of work and rest. Good work is hard work. So whatever you do, what Paul says, whatever you do, believer, work at it with all your heart. Give yourself fully to it. Work hard. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And if God's our audience, if he's our true master, if he's our boss, our supervisor, if he is Lord of the universe and Lord of our lives, if he is our audience, it only makes sense that we would give it our all. When you work, work for God's glory. When you rest, rest in God's grace. When you play, play in God's presence. And whatever you do, whatever you do, prepare diligently. Let's be a people who prepare Well, who prepare diligently. Nehemiah prepares for what he'll face. That's certain. There's no way that we can miss that in this story. Before the labor, before the work even begins, he waits three days in the city, verse 11. Why does he tell us that? I don't know. Scholars assume that perhaps he's resting, preparing for what he's about to do. He waits three days in the city. Then he goes on a night ride to research the city's walls for himself. He's strategizing. He's organizing. He's organizing people for the work to be done. He's praying, planning, preparing, strategizing, and organizing so that at the proper time, he'll be ready to motivate in the most effective way. Likewise, friends, if you've been given a position of leadership in any fashion whatsoever, certainly most of us have or will in some way, small or large, if you've been given a position of leadership, prepare diligently and motivate appropriately. Motivate appropriately. No doubt many good plans never happened because of poor leadership, but this leader, Nehemiah, did his homework. Then he pitched his plans to the people and he watched his God. He watched God's spirit move the people to join in God's work. Church, I hope we're seeing this morning that good work is work done for God's glory. May God be glorified in our work. 
May his name be praised in us. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, may his name be praised in our lives, in our living, in our doing, in our working. May he be glorified in our work. But, but hear me now, and this is, this is important. This is key. This is central. Good work does not determine your identity. As one who knows the God of Scripture, as one who knows the character and the kindness and the person of the Lord, as one who knows Jesus Christ, good work does not determine our identity. Successful work doesn't make you a good person. The quality of your work is not the measure of your worth. Christian Christ Jesus himself is the measure of your worth. He is the measure of your worth. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is by God's grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is by God's grace, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No boasting among the saved. So even though we work for the Lord and unto the Lord, we do not work to appease the Lord or to earn the Lord's love. We work because we are loved. We work and we serve and we give our lives for His glory because we are His people with, with faith in His Son, the one and only Son sent to save us, to rescue us from our sins, no longer building walls around Jerusalem, for him to dwell. That's not what we're doing. No longer building walls around the city as a place for God to dwell, but giving our hearts to him as the place his spirit now dwells, inviting God's spirit to continually shape our hearts that we might indeed do good works in response to his grace. Saved by grace. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, but we are his handiwork. We are God's Handiwork. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Are you confident you've been created in Christ to do good works? What does it mean to be created in Christ? To be created in Christ is to be one of his people. It is to be purchased by his blood. It is to be forgiven of your sins and trusting that Jesus himself completed the real work for us, the true work that allows our work to be counted as good. You see, the Bible says that in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the giving of his life for ours in him we have redemption through his blood the blood of Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us well church this morning we have the opportunity to express and participate in remembering this blood bloodshed of Jesus the Christ the lamb seated on the throne Opportunity to participate together as a body of believers, a family of faith in remembering that Jesus gave his life in your place and in my place so that we could be restored, so that we could be reconciled 
by God's grace through faith in Jesus so that we could be at peace with God now and forever so that we could have new life. We celebrate this morning the work that Jesus has done for us. And so in just a moment, you'll have the the opportunity, we'll, we'll have the opportunity and the privilege to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper, to remember the words of our Savior, to eat and to drink, remembering his body broken and his blood shed for us. And we do so collectively, we do so together as a family of believers, looking back at the cross and knowing that the price has been paid for our salvation. Looking up and knowing that Jesus even now reigns on the throne of heaven and looking around and seeing brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in the faith. Knowing that God has made us through Jesus part of a community of his people and looking ahead as we anticipate the return of this Savior one day soon for us. And so as believers, we, we celebrate. We remember with gratitude what Christ has accomplished for us. We celebrate with joy and thanksgiving, the gift of our salvation. And so if you're a believer, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, young or old, we invite you to participate this morning in communion, to take the bread, to eat, remember to drink the juice, and remember the bloodshed of our Savior. If not, if if you're not a believer, we would ask that you abstain out of respect for what Christ has commanded his, his people to do. So I want to invite our deacons who are serving the Lord's Supper, if they would come at this time and come to their place of service. As they come, let me invite all of us to, to pause together and to reflect and to remember, to remember Christ, his completed and accomplished work for us to prepare our own hearts, to confess our own sins before him and to receive the elements with joy and thanksgiving as his people. So I want to pray. I'll lead us in a prayer of confession. And then after I pray, Tim's going to play. You you come. If you're a believer, I invite you to participate. You come to any of these tables to be served the bread and the cup. If you prefer to be served where you are, a prepackaged cup, we'll have a couple deacons that will roam around and be glad to do that as well. But let's pause together in prayer. And then as you're led, you come. Oh, Father, we, we pause this morning once again to declare that you are mighty. That you are majestic. That there is no one like you. Oh, indeed, that you are God over all and worthy of praise. You're holy and righteous. And yet we have offended you, Lord. We have, we have sinned against you. We, we have gone our own way we have fallen short of your your glory but even so even so lord in your mercy you have planned our salvation oh father you have sent your son jesus to rescue us to redeem us to reconcile us to forgive us of our sins and this morning we say thank you oh god thank you for paying the price of our salvation forgive us Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting the riches of your grace upon each of us. Forgive us where we fail you and lead us to partake this morning with thanksgiving and joy in a way that exalts our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.